Hi there. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to start with a little pre-interview conversation I had with my podcast guest today, BT Wolf. I wanted to keep it separate and was initially not going to add it at all, but on reflection I felt it was important to locate our conversation not only within the socio-political climate we're currently in, but also to contextualise the work BT is doing. So think of this as a prelude to our conversation. I, I don't know about you, but it just feels as if it's been a kind of weird blur these past, but now I guess eight months. So, yeah. um, and, and sort of particularly in America, it's very, and, and then with the fires in California and everything, it's yeah. just been quite. It's a lot of things, isn't it? I know it's, um, I don't know. I mean, the introvert in me has done well because I work at home and I do stuff at home, but obviously the context in which this is happening is really not good. So um, yeah, like you say, I feel, part of me feels like five years have gone by. It just feels like the <laughs> long, so long. <laughs> no, and I, I'm the same, you know, definitely um, more introvert than extrovert. And that, that side has really enjoyed just kind of having reasons not to, you know, like really being given the freedom just to, to be kind of at home and be doing things in a different way. Um, but it's definitely, I think here, just because of the, the fires, the air quality, mm. the, you know, election just around the corner, all of that stuff, which is nuts. Um, and then, you know, so much that sort of also happened with like the Black Lives Matter. And mm. Just it's been a very, um, it's, it just feels like it's been a very kind of charged time. And, and I think a lot of it's really, it's like an explosion and so much needed to kind of come out. But um, it's, yeah, it's kind of dystopian, you know, when, yeah. when you, you, you realise you're in, LA and you know you're in a city that should be kind of there should be a safety net you know you you realize I guess just the fragility of living in the states for so many people and then you count yourself you know lucky that you're um in a position where at least it's not you know it's nothing like how difficult it is for so many people um but it's just a shame that it feels sort of so kind of you know it, those infrastructures that you have in Europe and the, in the UK, and, mm. and uh, the, the sort of sense that you will be looked after if, if something happens. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you realise here it's just a bit of the Wild West. Yeah, you realise. It's funny because you know I'm half South African and I have friends living in other parts of the world that I guess you'd be call them developing nations. The strange thing with places that don't have a lot of in infrastructure is that they have learned to do community really, really well. So in a weird way, they're actually, in some instances, better off because mm. they just know how to look after each other. Um, yeah. And I think in times like this, knowing how to do community is so vital. But... <laughs> yes, <laughs> sorry, on this, let, let's get into your actual no, no, no. show. This is good. This is, you know, this is all part of it. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. 
I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. The wild winds they weep, the night unfolds, oh, creep beneath my sheet, evade the cold, below behold the rage of a burning age, and suffocate the storm. With a howling song So if the sky would crash and tumble Crash and tumble now Some conversations are less about answers and more about the questions Getting to the why of an issue And sometimes those questions, those whys Open the door to unexpected discoveries That give rise to even more questions that's how I would describe my conversation with today's guest, artist B.T. Wolf. You know, I think we have this uh, idea that just because we can, we should, you know, and so a huge part of the work, I mean, the, the sort of main thing I'm always thinking about with everything is what do we need to innovate or where can we innovate? Not even what do we need to, but where can we innovate? Um, what can we update, but also what can we reclaim? You know, what are some of the experiences that we somehow have, you know, dislodged and we don't think are valuable anymore, or we think we can keep, you know, reinventing the wheel. And I think with music, you know, music and art go so deep, you know, they are core to our humanity. I was introduced to Beattie's work at her retrospective at London's Victoria and Albert Museum, and to say I was blown away is an understatement. Beattie isn't solely a musician, she's a tech innovator, a scientist, an artist, she sent her music into space, played in the quietest room on earth, she's contributed to pioneering dementia research, she's the first person to use live 360 VR in her music, created an environmental protest piece using 800,000 years of NASA data, the list goes on. If I were to tell you all of it, it would sound like I'm reeling off an impressive CV. But what I find more impressive isn't actually what she's achieved, albeit incredible. It's her curiosity and what I would call a very simple yet deeply rooted conviction about the power of music. It's those questions that I was telling you about. And it's from that questioning that BT has innovated, challenged, pioneered, and for people like me, really inspired. And so that ended up becoming this 
you know, research project that I did in the UK and I went to, you know, care homes all the, all across the UK and performed a set of original music live. And then we did a follow-up session with the same songs on headsets and the results were, were just astounding. Um, and I saw reactions to music. I've still to this day, you know, are some of the most incredible reactions to music I've ever seen. And, and those really imprinted on me. We talk about the why of music, its importance, its value, its ability to heal, to connect us, what Beattie calls music as medicine, and the conditions needed to ensure that it, again to quote Beattie, imprints. So um, I think music has definitely been devalued to almost to a point of kind of not having value in many ways. Um, and, you know, with the the push of songs getting shorter, BPMs getting faster, getting to the chorus quicker, um, again, to suit these algorithms, you know, music being made for the platform rather than a platform supporting the music, um, you basically have jingles. Lots of great words have been used to describe Beattie and her work. Groundbreaking, visionary, captivating, profound. All of which are true, but what I hope you'll hear in our conversation is the creative possibilities available to us when we respond to the pull of our questions. Um, Beattie Wolf, I discovered you in a really strange way on the that sort of music the musical or the creative version of linkedin the dots and i went to your exhibition at the victorian albert museum the art of music in the digital age and i had never heard of you before and my mind was blown and I was like, oh my God, there really are people on the planet doing whatever the heck they like and really owning it in a really amazing way. I know Vice calls you a musical weirdo and visionary. I don't know what I'd call you, um, but I don't know anybody who does what you do and with such freedom. So perhaps let's go back to the very beginning and um, there's, you've done so many things. I'm like, how am I going to get through everything you've done? But let's go back to the very beginning and just maybe you tell us how did you get started, who you are and kind of what you do? Sure. Well, you know, thank you so much for the incredibly kind words. And I, yeah, I remember us meeting, um, I think, briefly at the, at the V&A. And I was mm. just so sort of frazzled by that point because I'd been in the sh in the exhibition um every day that it was on and mm. the mu museum curators kind of thought that was odd because they're like we've never had an artist just be in their own exhibition but I felt like you know why wouldn't you just want to witness you know the reactions to the stuff that you've created isn't that you know, the kind of the greatest gift to be able to see people engage with, you know, these designs that you've made and, and, mm. and get that fee sense of feedback. And, but, um, yeah, so I, you know, I'm a musician, I'm an artist in, in, in many ways in a pretty traditional sense, you know, I write songs primarily on piano, guitar, um, the music is largely acoustic, um, so it's sort of in that vein of, you know, Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits, um, John Lennon, you know, it's sort of in that kind of wheelhouse. Um, but then I guess because I love music so much and I started writing songs when I was very young, um, six or seven, 
And for me, it was just an extension of storytelling, which I also, you know, that was how I spent my childhood, just uh, making up stories in different formats, whatever those formats were, and Mm -hmm. discovering sort of songwriting and then, you know, my parents' record collection and seeing this collection of records as these musical books that you could open up and read. And there was an art form, a tangible art form, a ceremony to the experience, a story for the, you know, the whole kind of album story. Um, I, it imprinted on me, you know, so deeply. And I was imagining, well, what albums, what will my albums look like? What will they feel like? What worlds will I create? Uh, and that was such a big part of what was going on in my mind all the time I you know, was growing up. Um, and that physical listening experience was so key for me so that when we moved from physical to digital, I felt like we'd really uh, missed a lot and we'd missed the opportunity to sort of bridge the physical with the digital and figure out, well, what's the best of the old and the best of the new? And how, how about we create something that sort of, you know, incorporates both of that? So the idea of having, you know, my first album be this uh, intangible digital download, it just, it just really didn't excite me. And of course, I thought, yeah, you're going to have to, you know, you're not going to be a purist and say, okay, people can only listen like this. So that was, I was always in in the mindset of inclusivity and access and, and that side of it. But I felt like, okay, if it's going to be an you know, iTunes release and then I'll obviously do a vinyl, um, but why does it have to be one or the other? What about if you blended the two and you created something that's essentially a new format that has this sort of familiar nostalgic feeling, but then is also cutting edge? Um, and so that was you know, what led me to create the first of my album designs, which was this you know, theatre for the palm of your hand and a way of watching an album um, sort of as if it were uh, 80s, you know, like you were looking through the 80s Viewmaster. Um, yeah. So it was this sort of very retro but also very futuristic experience. And mm. that was, I guess, the beginning of what I've done, you know, ever since, which has just been a continuation of that same thinking. How do you, you know, how do what would the what would the vinyl experience look like today you know or um how can you reintroduce tangibility ceremony and storytelling into the digital listening experience absolutely and i think you said something that i've heard you mention a few times when you talk about music imprinting on the brain and you talk about storytelling tangibility and ceremony and your second album you did the jacket that was like a jacket, an actual jacket, but it was a jacket sleeve and then woven into the fabric was the music. So you could literally run your phone over the jacket and then the music would come up on your phone. Is that correct? So that was, um, uh, yeah, that was album number two, Montague Square. And, um, and that was, you know, quite simply an, a reimagining of the album jacket as literally, you know, an album jacket um, that was woven with my music, cut by the tailor who dressed Bowie Hendrix Jagger um, out of this fabric with, you know, my music sort of woven in. And we would, we'd recorded it in the space where um, McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, Hendrix wrote The Wind Cries Mary. So it was this incredible historic house 
where so many of my favorite musicians had lived and written songs and, you know, sort of breathed life into this place. And I just loved the idea of capturing the music in that sort of incredible historic resonant space. Um, it then being woven into this, you know, visual, tangible um, fabric, which was then cut by this tailor who dressed a lot of those people, same people. Um, and it was really, you know, it was quite <laughs> flamboyant. It was out there. It was always going to be one of, it, you know, one of one kind. It wasn't about sort of doing a lot of these jackets. It was um, more of a statement and, you know, looking at music as art in this very, in this very literal way. Um, mm -hmm. and I think because album jackets, what, you know, they were such a core part of the listening experience in terms of, again, telling a story, you know, giving you this sort of, um, this thing in your imagination that, you know, took you into help take you into that world. Um, and obviously then, you know, you're, you're looking at them, the, the size of a vinyl, uh, reduced to, you know, this kind of tiny icon on your computer. Um, so again, you know, it's sort of playing with that idea of, well, how can you introduce the jacket in this different way that really captures people's imaginations? Absolutely. And I think what you do so well, I think your music really does need to be experienced. And what I mean by that is when when going at, to the V&A and actually experiencing, so seeing the jacket, seeing how it works. Um, and just what I love so much was just how out there your stuff is. And I don't mean out there. In, um, I felt like I was experiencing someone who just goes with whatever they're thinking in their mind, but it's so well thought out. And you're like, how did nobody ever think of doing this? It's just like a brilliant idea. And you're merging like retro, but with hyper modern stuff. And um, I really want to talk about this, the stuff you did with raw space and sending your music to space and in the anechoic chamber, because that was extraordinary. So tell us a little bit about how you got into that. Um, that, so that was album number three. And, you know, by this point we'd moved into streaming. So the first two albums, um, you know, eight and Montague square, which ended up being the theater for the palm of the hand, you know, that was eight. And then Montague square was this album jacket and a deck of cards, um, an intelligent deck of cards that looked like a cassette tape. Um, so that, that was sort of a response to the iTunes kind of era. And then, you know, obviously we moved into streaming and I felt like, wow, we've, <laughs> we've reduced the listening experience even more, you know, look on the flip side, obviously there are a lot of benefits. It's not, it's never about saying this, you know, it's, it's not about being black and white and saying, okay, uh, this is, you know, how everyone should listen to music and this is abhorrent. Um, you know, obviously the digital era created a lot of access and and there were a lot of benefits from artists being able to collect micropayments and take, you know, more power back and all of that, all of that side of it. But I really felt that it had impacted the value and the appreciation. And, you know, suddenly we had all this music at our fingertips, but we didn't really value it. We had the access but we didn't have the value. We had the noise, yeah. but we didn't have the curation. Um, and mm -hmm. we absolutely didn't have this 
you know, deeper ceremonial listening experience, which imprinted, you know, in the way that physical, whether it was tapes, you know, vinyls, I believe those really imprinted because of them having these three core things, tangibility, storytelling, and ceremony. So if I'm thinking, okay, nothing's imprinting, you know, everything's floating around in this same space. And how do we create essentially like the anti-stream? Like what would the antithesis of our streaming culture look like and feel like? And while I was thinking about this, I just happened to be on site at Bell Labs, you know, where um, they invented the laser and the telephone and all of these amazing inventions. And I was sort of working with them on a different experiment and um, ended up going into what was the quietest room on earth you know, for many decades, uh, it was the place where Helen Keller experienced silence and made all these incredible discoveries for our understanding of audio. But, but kind of beyond that, it was just this amazing room where, you know, you had absolute silence. And as I was going in there, the engineer said, you know, you'll, you'll probably only be able to stay here 10 minutes because you hear the blood rushing through your veins and a lot of people really, you know, freak out. Um, but I had the absolute opposite experience and I just found it so calming and resetting and realized it it sort of further made me realize, you know, how much noise we have around us all the time and how music has really become part of that. Um, so in my mind, you know, this incredible raw space, uh, with, with no echo, no reverb, nothing in the way of kind of, um, you know, enhancing the sound where you're just there with yourself and this beautiful silence, it felt like the perfect ceremonial listening space to stage this anti-stream from. So the experience ended up being a, you know, a record player playing the album on repeat 24 hours for a week, which was, you know, live 360 streaming uh, to YouTube. So people could log in and be in this space and, um, you know, listen to the music in this pure focused way. And they couldn't fast forward. They couldn't interfere. Um, But then using live animations, the lyrics would be streaming out of the vinyl, the artwork would be sort of surrounding you and um, transforming the chamber into the visual landscape of each track in real time as that song was playing. Um, And nothing like that had been done. You know, Live 360 hadn't been done. Live Live 360 AR hadn't been done. Um, But, you know, you made a comment, which I really appreciate, about how uh, it is very cutting edge, the work I do, but it's also very sort of familiar and tactile and nostalgic. And so, you know, I think a lot of people, I mean, obviously at the time it was written about because it was a first, you know, in, in many areas, but when the actual experience felt very sort of, um, it didn't feel like tech heavy at all. It felt like this kind of fantasia you know, this modern day Fantasia experience where the record was just coming to life around you in this really beautiful integrated way. Um, And that's a huge thing for me is that the tech should always be absolutely invisible and it's facilitating, you know, a story, a feeling, an intention, a vision, but it's not about the tech itself. Um, And so, you know, I was really happy with kind of how that how that ended up um, being experienced because it really felt like 
me, age seven, opening up Abbey Road and this record in my mind just, you know, coming to life in my imagination. Um, so that's what I think we created with Raw Space. You had to see what's beneath So you scratched in your sleep Seeing voices in your dreams And they told you it's hard When you're flung in this world Tender hands that turn to fists Till you're beautifully scarred You're beautifully scarred It's so funny because the way you talk about records, my parents had a really interesting uh, record collection. And I remember to this day being a child and just, like you say, opening up the sleeve and reading everything and touching it and looking at the pictures. Um, but, and I, 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 my first EP was based on, we had this vinyl called um, Wally Walton's Nursery Rhymes. And, it ha and I remember it really well and I used to listen to it. And so I wrote an EP called Nursery Rhymes for Grown Folks, like which was it. like this idea. Yeah, so it was like I took nursery rhymes and adapted them for adults. But what I love about what you have done with your stuff is that you have this sort of, I would, if you like, a core principle, you talk about music as medicine and the, and the power of music, but you actually use tech to facilitate it, which then becomes extremely cutting edge, even though the heart of what you're wanting to do is really still a fundamental human need and is really pure and is actually really quite simple. And I think that's what has blown me away about your work. Thank you. And, you know, I think you've absolutely hit on it it's you know i think we have this uh idea that just because we can we should you know and so a huge part of the work i mean the the sort of main thing i'm always thinking about with everything is what what do we need to innovate or where can we innovate not even what do we need to but where can we innovate um what can we update but also what can we reclaim? You know, what are some of the experiences that we somehow have, you know, dislodged and we don't think are valuable anymore or we think we can keep, you know, reinventing the wheel? And I think with music, you know, music and art go so deep, you know, they are core to our humanity and that has been proven, um, you know, very uh, con not conveniently, but helpfully by, you know, Oliver Sacks and the work that he did in that space, um, which then inspired me to, you know, do this music dementia research project. But when, when you see how deep music goes, um, and even beyond, you know, memory, familiarity, all these things that we thought we knew about how it worked, uh, and why it was able to, you know, uh, reawaken people with, uh, autism, schizophrenia, Parkinson's dementia in a way that, you know, nothing else was able to. And I think 
we just sometimes forget, you know, that we're that we're human beings and actually um we just we want to feel connected, we want to feel moved, we want to feel uplifted. And you know, the wonderful thing about art is it reflects our humanity, but it also reflects something of our divinity, you know, the best side of our nature. And so that's why it inspires and it and it sort of transcends so many things. Um so I feel like with technology, you know, it fast tracked a lot, but it also fast tracked a lot of what it means to be human and without the true cost or value sort of reflected in the process. Um, so my my work really is about, I think, fo- refocusing on these experiences that I think are core to our humanity and which will never go out of fashion. Um, but I. Have used technology as almost a way of almost just like a a sprinkling of dust to you know give something a kind of a a new presentation. So while the presentation is different, the core is very familiar. You know the the and if that core is the music part or you know the kind of heart of what that experience is doing, um, it's something that is you know, essentially just a, you know, a reimagining of the vinyl experience or, you know, the re- a reimagining of, you know, sitting down and, um, I don't know, you know, reading a poem or being in nature or, you know, whatever these experiences that sort of instantly um, connect with us uh, that I think we have got a little, um, we've sort of forgotten about in all the the access and the immediacy and the convenience that technology has given us and provided us with. Yeah, totally. And that thing of connectedness, it's funny, after I saw your exhibition and you had mentioned Oliver Sacks, I went and read Musicophilia. But um, but the work you have done in dementia because I mean that book is so interesting about the power of music, but from a I guess a neuroscience perspective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like why you got into music and dementia? And I know that I think you ended up at Stanford because of it, and just how something so simple can be so powerful. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the fascinating thing is I think we all know that music um runs very deep and i think so many people have had amazing experiences where they've seen that but there's also that element of you know we need we need science to back it up so what i loved um about what oliver sacks contributed and he contributed so much was this understanding of how deep music went or how deep music goes, but from a neurological standpoint. Um, And so he really grounded what a lot of us feel intuitively in science, you know, Um, but in a very humanizing way. 
Um, and so I'd been reading about, you know, these amazing case studies that he, as you know, and by the way, I'm amazed and very impressed you read <laughs> Musicophilia because a lot of people just find it so dense. Um, so well, yeah. well done you. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was reading it and then rereading it and, you know, just thinking, wow, there's really no greater application of music than this, you know. You're literally using music to to bring someone who is otherwise sort of seemingly, you know, um, completely locked, and you're unlocking your your. There's this way in that music provides, and you're bringing this person back. And just how incredibly moving um, is that? You know, so it it really really um, imprinted on me, and. But I wasn't thinking, okay, I'm going to go off and do anything in that area. You know, it wasn't part of my <laughs> my plan. Um, but when I found out that family members had dementia and I'd obviously, you know, fresh in my mind, I had all these examples of Oliver using music for dementia and Alzheimer's, typically familiar music, so music that would trigger a memory. Um, but he'd theorized that, you know, music should not have to be familiar to exert its emotional pull. He just hadn't tested it. So I thought, okay, well, you know, when I'm next visiting my grandma or father-in-law, whoever, you know, whoever it was, I'll bring the guitar and I'll play some songs and see what happens. Um, and the responses to that, particularly with the, in the case of my father-in-law, who was living in a, a Portuguese care home, um, and I ended up, you know, actually playing to the whole ward with you know, of people living with dementia and Alzheimer's because the director had asked if, you know, I wouldn't mind playing to everyone. And I sort of suddenly realized as I started, you know, oh, the, you know, these songs are new. Um, so, you know, no one here would know them. And they're in another language. You know, everyone was Portuguese apart from this relative. Um, so there won't even be a, a linguistic connection. Um, so I really had no expectations of, you know, what was going to happen. Uh, but I performed a set and I was like, you know, looking around and people were clapping and chatting and waking up and engaging. And it just felt like any, any normal performance, but I'm in a care home. And I got to the end of it and the, you know, the director said, in the 10 years he'd been there it was the best he'd seen the group and I felt at that point like there was a responsibility to take it further you know like I'd seen something that was it would expand the knowledge uh, and the kind of awareness around the power of music by looking at music um, you know uh, not attached to memory just music for music's sake um, and so that ended up becoming this you know, research project that I did in the UK and I went to, you know, care homes all, the, all across the UK and performed a set of original music live. And then we did a follow-up session with the same songs on headsets and the results were, were just astounding. Um, wow. And I saw reactions to music. I've, you know, uh, I, I still to this day, you know, are some of the most incredible reactions to music I've ever seen. And and those really imprinted on me. And so this research project, which, you know, I, again, didn't have any expectations of or, you know, how it was going to sort of unfold, 
Um, but that then started getting picked up by, you know, Stanford and all these top uh, neuroscientists and research institutes. Um, and I found myself, you know, sitting with, with these people and they were picking my brain on the subject. And I thought, okay, you know, this is fascinating. And um, so, you know, that study en ended up contributing um, to, to a lot of what was out there. Um, and then it, you know, was formed into this charity uh, that is now actively getting music in all care homes in the UK uh, by the end of next year. Um, so, wow. yeah, so, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those examples, and I think I've had a few in my life, of um, not silencing that inner voice, you know, that says, hey, there's something here, you know, you've got to pull this thread and, and see, you know, where it takes you. Um, because I think we do that, you know, we can do that so often we say, oh no, but I'm a, I'm this. So why would I go and do that? Or, you know, oh, someone else will think of it or someone else will do it. And I look back and I think every one of my projects actually has been a detour. You know, it was never really, each one was never really part of, of a plan at that time, but this inspiration sort of struck and there was this you know pull that was saying look over here and explore this you know this is this could be interesting and i guess i i just listened to it and i just trusted that and 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 really you know put my energy where it felt like it needed to be at that point I just I love so much so many things about what you said but the thing that strikes me most is how the power of following our curiosity um because you had this desire that you know your end goal wasn't I want to be at Stanford your your goal was like how do I connect again it's that 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 sort of foundational thing about connecting with people and sort of our, the 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 core of our humanity but in doing so you end up it's almost like is it like Alice through the looking glass that like you just go on the other side and then something else utterly extraordinary is there and it's funny as you was as you were talking I was thinking about you know what society places value on and I guess certain professions that are remunerated in a certain way and music is so powerful and you you your work always reminds me of that but i'm not sure that society places the level of value upon it that it deserves given the impact that it has i don't know what you think about that and if it even matters does society you know do people do people need to get paid more is that a sign of us valuing work more if people are paid better you know if that makes any sense yeah, I mean, I think, I think music, you know, how can music be valued when you have just the volume that exists today? Um, and, you know, without going into it, because it's, <laughs> we don't need to go into it. But, you know, the, yeah. gr the gross manipulation when it comes to, you know, um, click farms, algorithms, all of that, which is, you know, largely controlled by the industry. 
And so you've got this sort of real, you've got, you have the gatekeepers still, but the gatekeepers have decided that music is valueless, you know, basically. Um, and then you don't have the curators because the digital era kind of dislodged a lot of the real curation and, you know, hey, go listen to this band, you know, in, I don't know, Rolling Stone or Independent or whatever. And that and that meaning something, you know. So um, I think music has definitely been devalued to almost to a point of it kind of not having value in many ways. Um, and, you know, with the the push of songs getting shorter, BPMs getting faster, getting to the chorus quicker, um, again, to suit these algorithms, you know, music being made for the platform rather than a platform supporting the music, um, you basically have jingles. You know, it's it's like we've gone from albums to to singles to jingles. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I don't like to get to... I've never really been like, oh, let me tell everyone what I think is wrong with, you know, the industry and where we are. And, you know, I, I've always tried to think, well, uh, I don't really get excited about what's going on over there. So let me try. I'm, I want to create something that I do get excited about, you know, and maybe that inspires other people to go and think differently and and, you know, do their own version of, you know, um, sort of. It, you know, just reimagining things in a way that excites them. Um, so I think that, I think also, um, and you said something, and I don't know why it made me think of this, but I feel as if we, we've sort of also lost what it means to be an artist, because I think for so long being an artist meant multiple things it wasn't one limited compressed field and again with music becoming so creatively compressed today you know um it, it almost more than ever you need to start incorporating different things into what it means to be an artist but even outside of you know if you look at the renaissance artists and that idea that they were a poet they were a painter they were Absolutely. musical um, which is something that always just made complete sense to me. I also feel like, well, why would you end there? Why wouldn't you bring in, you know, science and health and, you know, technology again, you know, it, for the right reasons and, and bring in these other fields and these other layers to create this richer um, kind of landing point that, yes, it's music, yes, it's art, but you're also discovering you know, the horn antenna that was used to pick up cosmic microwave radiation and, you know, that I did a space beam through, or, you know, you're discovering these amazing historic layers or, you know, these things that people have invented or these other wonderful people and, you know, their creations. Um, I think I've just always felt like storytelling is best when it's rich. And so why wouldn't you try and um, blend other, instead of keeping everything siloed and everything is like, oh, the parameters of, you know, an artist today equals this. So I've got to stay here. You know, why wouldn't you just explore all of that, all of that space and see with any given project, you know, um, 
where that narrative might take you and what you might be able to incorporate as additional parts of that world in the process. Uh, and that's never about doing it for the sake of doing it. You know, again, with every one of the projects, there was a sort of seed of an idea. And then a big part of it was being in the in the right place at the right time and and having that spark this whole other kind of, you know, imagining of how that seed could grow. Um, and then again, in the process, you know, finding the, some amazing people to work with and that, you know, and then but the inspiration of that, which obviously, you know, I was sort of super inspired by something. And so then I guess that passion was transmitted and, you know, you were able to create something really out of out of this world. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just feel <laughs> and I don't know if that's answering your question, but I think. I think we impose parameters that don't need to exist. And I think music today is so lacking its full kind of, it really just, the, it, it's got so far away from music as medicine, which if you really think about that, it's not clinical. It's just music keeps us alive inside. And when that is the a core sentiment, you know, um, how do we preserve that idea? How do we remind people of that idea and that value? And so I think everything that I, I do is trying is about trying to remind people of the real value of music for us all um, and to be able to have these immersive, deeper ceremonial experiences that are around music, but are also incorporating other, um, other aspects to really get a rich, um, a, a sort of rich, I don't know, um, I don't want to say experience again, because I feel like I say <laughs> that all the time. But, you know, just to take people on this journey and um, to give them this imagination space. Um, which, you know, again, I think is all about creating new ways of imprinting in a time when not a lot is imprinting, you know. It's, it, I, I absolutely agree. And I think even as you're talking, what I'm reminded of, my mum my is an educator and she's, I remember she said, you know, the moment education became something that was commodified, we lost the core of what education was for because it became league tables and getting the right people in the universities and, you know, charging the most for the most courses. And then you actually lose the heart of something. And in a weird way, when you create an industry, that is just another way to make money, but we're using it through the medium of music. And I would even say more and more now, we're buying into a brand who just happens to make some music, which yes. is not really music. The, it actually, it devalues everything. And I do, I often think about, say, 200 years from now. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I grew up playing classical music and I'm imagining an, a world where, Chopin, did he ever think 200 years later people would be lining up to listen to his music and people would still be playing it? Or when you go to, um, a, what is it called, Sagrada de la Familia and Gaudi's that giant cathedral mm. and just 
you know, he made this thing because he was curious or for whatever reasons he made it. And we're still walking around this unfinished edifice, like I'm curious by it and all of these things. And I wonder sort of 50, 100 years from now, whether people will be listening, you know, listening to his music and going, what the heck is this? You know, will we remember any of these songs? Will we remember? And I you said earlier about curation and I think it's so true it's almost like I guess the internet has created this sort of egalitarian space but the stuff that you get to experience like you know the reason one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because although I'm a musician I am inspired by so many things because I'm fundamentally a creative person exactly so yeah so you know I've gotten into quantum physics because it fascinates me and 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 it kind of is making me reassess how I write music and if we create this sort of narrow space I think like you said the richness of everything dissipates and we don't even get to I'm interested in uh, in a world like you where we get to really explore the parameters of what is available to us. And it does require creating spaces where people have the opportunities to really explore. And I think that's what's become harder and harder to do. Well, and I think you touched upon it when you talked about um, why things are made um, and, the, and the why behind it because that is a very intangible um, aspect that's impossible to put your finger on, but you feel it. So, you know, the, the intentionality um, behind, you know, uh, great, uh, you know, some of the greatest architecture, scientific dis- discoveries, you know, art, poetry, literature, um, design, whatever it is, you know, those, those things that, um, become timeless and, uh, and endure, you know, and that we keep returning to, we keep returning to as sort of cornerstones of our humanity. Um, so often, as you said, there, those creations are born out of, curiosity or you know a desire to further something or contribute or connect people or illuminate and there is this sort of sense with a lot of that you know you think about so many of of the you know incredible structures that um were built over you know decades centuries you know there wasn't even an idea that you could realize that in your lifetime you were just contributing to it um, and That's powerful. Yeah. And I think that we've become so fixated on, you know, it's we've gone the opposite way. So everything is now, everything is instant gratification. This feedback loop is so short. You know, we do something, we put it up, we want, you know, we want to know immediately that people what people think. And that element of technology and social media that really has actually amplified uh, the dysfunctionality of the ego and, you know, that sort of narcissistic aspect um, combined with this thing of just, you know, again, just wanting everything immediately and not really thinking, you know, two years, three years, 10 years, 20 years from now, um, 
I think that has then also informed the intention. So everything becomes about immediate response or or, or money or, you know, figuring out the algorithm for that next cycle or whatever it is, instead of thinking, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this. I have no idea if anyone, you know, there's no sense of what will come back, but I want to explore this space and it feels really, you know, it cool or interesting, or I'm really passionate about it. And you're almost not thinking about what's going to end up you know, what, what you will end up getting from that. Um, and I think that intention, that sort of quality of intention, it creates a charge, you know, within the work. And it's the difference between, um, you know, someone waking up in the middle of the night and feeling like this sort of song is pouring through them and they just have, have to capture it um, to, you know, a bunch of record execs sitting in a room figuring out what song Donny Hathaway's song is out of copyright you know that they can kind of rejig so that <laughs> intentionality in that moment of creation imprints on the thing itself and I think we feel it and I think we are moved by um by creations from curiosity passion joy love things that bring us together um, things that give this sort of energy of, of their own. And you can feel when something is just made, you know, to satisfy the taste of the day or, you know, to, to sort of suit, you know, a platform or whatever it is, um, because those feel immediately time stamped and they don't feel timeless, you know. Yeah, you're right. It's funny. I keep, it makes me think of like GM food, but like GM music it's like just music by numbers and I mean it's it's similar for me with um voices I've been interviewing quite a few singers and I recently interviewed this incredible Native American singer and I've always found that um you can hear somebody's story in their voice even if you don't know them and although we live I think we live in a, a world where because of like reality shows, you hear so many singers now and they can sing well, like, you know, they can hit the notes and they can do the runs, but the thing that makes you connect isn't there. Yeah. And, and I have found that the singers that move me, they are singing from a place that you can't learn. You can only live. And I just think, I mean, I think in a weird way, the, the world we're in at the moment, people are longing for authenticity. Um, I think we've almost, I mean, we'll see what happens in, say, between two to five years, like how, how music changes and how the arts changes. But as you said at the very top of this discussion, you know, the world feels so charged that I think people are needing stuff that connects them to home and makes them feel safe and connects them with each other because everything feels so unstable that you need something to stabilize. Yeah. But I do think, and so I actually feel like what may emerge the way music in the seventies, you know, people like, um, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? The times they are changing. All of these kind of albums were emerging from an era because people were responding to the Vietnam War and all of those things. Whether we're now going to have this sort of wave of music that is more authentic than ever before and more real than ever before because we need truth again, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely. And I know I think about that all the time and I and I remain optimistic because I think that, you know, we as you said, we will start to really crave um things that make us feel. And, you know, as as you mentioned and I've thought exactly the same thing, you know, you can hear a hundred voices and they're all technically, you know, perfect, but there's nothing that makes you feel anything. Um, and I think I love what you said about the story, you know, and, and living, it's like, you can hear what people have lived through their voice. Um, I would, I would also say, and as in, I think that is beautiful. Um, for me, I was also always thought about it as this is where technology has got in the way of art, because now we have, you know, the ability to kind of perfect and correct and quantize and tune and all of that. And as a result, you don't really hear the human being anymore. Um, and it's those imperfections, those cracks, those weird deliveries, you know, whether it's Otis Redding or Nina Simone or, you know, those great voices, Etta James and you and, you know, whether it's Otis's timing or the fact that Nina sort of basically speaking every, you know, it's, she's singing, but she's speaking. And, you know, all these unique ways of expressing something real, they really had something to say and you knew it, you know, and that is what's powerful. And it's not the, you know, if if everything sounds the same and you iron out what it is to be human, then you lose the ability to connect. You can't connect with that. You know, it's aesthetically maybe pleasing, but it doesn't hold any emotional pull. Um, And so I think that's the kind of, again, that's where we've gone off track because we've started using technology to iron out what makes us human and, you know, pave in the cracks of where the light is or, you know, where we have those moments of really like, oh, wow, you know, and I, I think so many times, like so many of also my favorite artists, you know, technically their voice was not great. But it really didn't matter. And then what is great anyway? You know, but those people would not probably exist today. And that makes me sad because, Mm. you know, those are some of the greatest artists of all time. Um, And time has been that separating factor. But today, you know, it's like there's a very different... um, that you know there's just a very different environment um so i think with there will be a we will go full cycle um or full circle you know and we will go back to th- those things that you know those simple things that we think you know are a little or unimportant or you know that that aren't so valuable and i think we we will return to um art and nature you know that really makes us feel um and and on the environment side you know not to go on but i think you know you can also look at how disconnected we've become from the environment in the same way that we've sort of become disconnected from the power of art because again you know 
it was fast tracked. We could have whatever we want whenever we wanted it, and we could fly whenever we wanted, and it was, you know, reasonable and you know democratic and all of that in terms of you know flight, you know, travel prices, and and Mm -hmm. so we we felt like we had this infinite potential, but we have finite resources, you know, and we are absolutely dependent on the natural world to be here. Um, and yeah. yet we felt that we are bigger than it. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's about stripping out a lot of the stuff that does not serve us. And, you know, when we are using, you know, technology innovation in the way, you know, obviously, which I have done in numerous ways, you know, what is why? Why are we doing it? And what is it serving? And what are the things actually the really simple things that that keep us alive inside that we don't need to keep on reinventing or trying to make perfect or figuring out ways that, you know, humans don't have to do it anymore and we can, you know, like we don't need songs by human beings anymore. You know, it's like really we are, you know, we are, we are sentient beings uh, on mm. this planet and um and there are a few things i think that really remind us of that and i think that is you know art and nature so yeah absolutely absolutely um i'm thinking of you know a lot of your your work as you know as we said has really spoken to those things and I, I almost I don't want to reel off your work like a CV, but it's just because I want people to to know and go and explore some more. Just and um, particularly what we're talking about, you know, you sent your music, the raw data of your music to space through the horn antenna, which is just amazing. The horn antenna that was used to prove the theory of the Big Bang. You also did um the env- environmental stuff from green to red. And that actually was quite recently, isn't it? You did this environmental work using 800,000 years of Na- NASA planet data, this interactive installation. Um, and that will be at the, that will be at the London design Biennale in 2021. Um, oh, so next year it was yeah. due this year though, wasn't it? But it's been pushed forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, push back. Push back. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I've forgotten which way things go, you know, (laughs) time, months, all of that. Yeah. So that's a, it's an environmental protest piece built out of 800,000 years of historic data um, to create a stirring visualization of human impact on the planet and specifically CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, And that will be at the London Design Biennale at Somerset House next year, so 2021, June. So remember denial is a haunt of the head Let your eyes and your heart guide your reason instead When the hungry are stopped, the full are still fed We sit at the crossroads, the green turns to red But we don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to know And you also, again, it's just this love of merging your interests with music, with art. So you, you're doing 
you're actually writing for the Evening Standard, the in Insider series, you're interviewing artists in LA. And you're also doing this thing, which I think is very now, Postcards for Democracy with Mark Mothersbaugh. Do you want to tell us some more about that? Uh, for sure. Um, and that really has been a great pleasure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, talking about the things that, you know, the endangered experiences, uh, male, you know, physical communications, it's one of them. And the combination of the practical role that it serves and particularly highlighted during lockdown. Uh, and then also just the the powerful sort of ceremonial um, imprinting side of personal mail, you know, that whether it's writing or sending, uh, writing, sending, receiving. And um, so again, you know, something going on in my mind all the time, it's like, well, what are some of the experiences we're losing and that are important to us? And and mail has always been right up there for me. And, um, you know, I've always sent mail and always sent mail art, you know, things in, in the mail to people. Um, but then especially during lockdown, you know, the two things that were kind of keeping me sane um, were writing songs and writing letters. And uh, Mark Mothersbaugh and I had been talking about, you know, potential collaborations and what we could do together because, you know, he is another. I mean, he's an ama just an amazing individual. Um, and it was the first time outside of, you know, this one other friend, Ali Willis, that I'd met someone that was kind of thinking, you know, on my wavelength. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a sort of um, elevated way. I mean, just specifically that way of thinking, you know, like, oh, you know, taking a uh, code pioneered by Hedy Lamar and turning it into a secret communications album experience. You know, these things that make a lot of sense to me, but I appreciate don't always, you know, people need a bit of time to wrap their head around. And Mark just has that sort of similar way of looking at stuff. So we, we really connected uh, instantly and then we were trying to figure out what we could do. And with male art being such a huge part of his career which I hadn't initially uh, you know when I first met him I hadn't fully appreciated but he's been making and, and sending mail art since um, the 60s um, and painting a, you know creating a postcard every day so he touches a postcard every day <laughs> since that time um, and you know during the lockdown and realizing the importance of physical communication more than ever in some ways and then having the the sort of attack on usps over here um it felt like you know well we could create something that combines our love of this art form but is also a way for people to support usps celebrate you know sending mail celebrate this kind of core human experience and get people kind of thinking about it again um but simultaneously supporting this vital institution and our right to vote um and you know just having it be this kind of collective art demonstration that everyone can get involved with and is totally inclusive and is the cost of a postcard stamp which is you know 35 cents um so yeah we launched it september first week of September and it's you know now been a month 
and we have been inundated. Um, I mean, really, like I was, you know, I was sort of expecting a good response, but I was there yesterday and it's we have just boxes and boxes and sacks and just all of this mail that's come in and, you know, going through it and seeing some of the designs people have made and the variety of, you know, people that are getting involved and what they're saying and how they're saying it and the multimedia aspect of it. It's It's so wonderful and it's just been such a joyful place to put, you know, my energy and I think our energy right now um so once again it was one of those projects that was not planned I mean we really kind of talked about it a week before we launched it and but just decided like you know yes let's do it and it has kind of gathered its own momentum and you know has had a wonder a fantastic response so um I'm, yeah, I'm very, very much enjoying it. That's fantastic. It's real, like, grassroots participatory democracy. Totally. Um, which is, which is really, and, and when it gained its own momentum, I just think, you know, just people are really wanting to feel like they have some power when stuff doesn't feel like there's any, when it feels like nothing is controllable, it just feels so, like, all over the place. So that's a really powerful way and then are you going to I'm imagining you're going to display it all somewhere yeah we have a few different ideas um digital gallery physical installation and then a, a sort of physical art piece um but you know I think in addition to power which is you know it's totally about you know people feeling empowered which uh you know I think is so important and again it's it's something I really believe you know with the work that I do I hope it gives people a sense that if I've gone off and sort of thought you know well why not go and explore that space you know I, I feel like I hope it gives people a a, a kind of a, some inspiration that they can also follow that and I think you know the th thing you mentioned about education is from such a young age we're we're really taught you know to, we're either one thing or another and you know we often base that on what teachers say or what you know our family reflects back to us so we kind of we get into those boxes very early on and we often learn to silence our you know inner voice from a very young age so um i feel like you know anything you know anything that i do if there's also a sense of like hey you know i can go do that or i can try that you know that that's a big part of it. And I think with the postcard project, um, in addition to the, you know, the people feeling more empowered and, and, and craving that, I think, you know, giving people a creative outlet during a time where it's obviously so much has got kind of um, thrown up and, uh, and people feel, you know, probably more disconnected than ever. And so being physically part of something with you know in the act of creating something and sending it in and then seeing you know you're then part of this collective voice um i think that's a really powerful you know aspect of it because uh it's a very easy way for people to get involved but it also involves kind of um sparking their creativity and physically you know that tangible physical connection mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we really miss during during lockdown yeah 
Um, you know, the purpose of this podcast is it's the podcast is called Holding Up the Ladder. The idea being that as we all ascend and and in our creative spaces, we hold the ladder up for each other. It's about sharing knowledge. And you, I feel like you have, it sounds like a, to me, like such a core value of yours to through pursuing your own creativity, you're inadvertently giving permission to others. I mean, I know that was my experience um, seeing your work for the first time, but I would, and even with this, you know, postcards for democracy, but I always like to ask um, my guests what lessons they have learned that you think we could learn from. I mean, I think you, you've, you've been naturally sharing that, but is there anything you, in addition, you'd like to share that you think, oh, this has been a lesson that has really stood me well or served me well? Yeah, I, I, and there's so much as in, you know, there are so many things I could say, but I think, I really think cultivating what excites you and, and not silencing, you know, that part that, either is sort of saying, oh, you know, go explore this, this, you know, hey, I'm over here, come and look at me. Or, you know, if you're in a situation like I've been in so many times where something doesn't feel right, you know, you're in a room and you're there with, I don't know, all these engineers and they're all incredibly smart and double PhDs and you're thinking, hey, this project feels like it's going to get pulled off course, but, you know, all these people are very smart and, and you know, I should try and listen to them or, you know, and that as one example or, you know, in the dementia example, uh, you know, people that were trying to turn what we'd done into a, a company and I'm thinking that this was always about, you know, um, opening up the field and it was a philanthropic mm. project and it was about, you know, bringing light and awareness into this area. Um, so in those moments where I guess you're up against other people's agendas or um, intentions and they're not sitting well and you know why you're doing what you're doing and it's your vision and that's not an egotistical thing, it is just your vision. Um, and in those moments, realizing I am going to, say what I think needs to be said. And it's not even what I want to say. It's what needs to be said for this project to be realized in the way it's meant to be realized. In the core of the project, there is a sort of, you know, a potential realization and it's sort of tuning into that and thinking, okay, if it goes off in this direction, it's, it's not in harmony with what feels right for the vision and for this intention and I think in those moments speak out because every single time that I've had that feeling where I've wanted to keep quiet because you know you're not going to be popular or you're going to disturb the you know equilibrium and it's been uncomfortable and I've done it it's almost like it's done a 180 where suddenly it you know, went right in the direction it needed to and not necessarily immediately, but ultimately. Um, so that's something I've, I've really learned. And, you know, and, and in some cases, in one case, it actually prevented the anechoic chamber at Bell Labs, you know, this incredible historic space 
um, from being destroyed because a company oh, wow. was uh, trying to um, basically, you know, kind of turn it into this amusement park just for the money, you know. So, um, and, but then ruining all the, you know, anechoic properties, ruining everything that was kind of core to that room. Um, so I think it's just about being being true to yourself and speaking out with that truth, uh, particularly if it is a project that is, you know, that you are envisioning and that you're the visionary for, um, and not getting swayed by, you know, someone else will, someone else will say this, you know, someone else will say this, or, you know, it's not my place, or, you know, I'm not X enough, or whatever that whatever that is, um, it's really important. And I think that has made probably the biggest difference in, in my life, in my career, is just being so true to what I think needs to happen with the project, you know, not letting anything um, pull that um, off course, even if there could be immediate benefits, you know, I might get more work or I might get some money or whatever that like that all is irrelevant background stuff. And and, you, it, you, you know, you are in service of this thing that you have brought into existence and it's about fulfilling that. That's really, really good. And, and I think I love the last thing you said about being in service to I, I really believe that. I think there comes a point where even if you're making a song, you get to the point where you realize you're in service to that thing. And that really changes how you do things. But I think it also, well, not but, and I think it requires a level of knowing yourself and a level of integrity, like knowing your why and knowing what you really, really value. And I think and again, it shines through everything you do. There is a, a consistency about what you're doing and your curiosity. And you just see it all the time. And I find it amazing. The only other person I can think of in the music industry that I'm seeing do that is Björk. Mm. She just seems to just do what she wants. And, and in so doing, it opens the door to really dynamic, brilliant things that create opportunity for other people. So, you know. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And and just on that, because you said something that I think is really important. Um, you know, there was always an understanding, you know, in Greek times, um, Roman times, that, you know, we we accessed something. Something would come through us, you know. So you possessed a genius for say oratory but you weren't a genius it wasn't that you are a genius it was that you possessed it um you had this connection with you know however whatever the word is but you know something something came through you and i think that's been one of the biggest shifts you know that's happened particularly recently is that um everyone is you know it's is you are a genius or you know it's all about the person and it's sort of all about the personality. And I think that, um, you know, you ask any, I mean, artist, architect, you know, poet, you know, so many of the people that we talked about and so many of those 
um, wonderful contributions that have been made, you know, so often they'll say, oh, you know, I don't know where it just came from nowhere or, you know, I picked it up or, you know, I, it, you know, I was so lucky to receive it or, you know, I, I think we're all like antennas and there are all these um, frequencies or ideas or stories or songs or uh, discoveries floating around out there. And we, um, we just have to receive them, really. It's not even, I mean, sometimes it's tuning in, but sometimes it's just receiving them. Um, and I think that that is a huge um, quality when we talked about intention of when you're doing it in that way and you don't see it as you, you see it as, you know, something that um, is moving through you. Um, that And that doesn't mean you have to then, you know, you can't then, as I said, be the one that's steering it and being, you know, and being the one that in that moment, that is the vision that you're kind of carrying out. But I think it's a huge difference. And I think the quality, again, the quality of what comes out is so different because it's done in that way where there is this respect and appreciation and a, and a sort of purity. You know, you're not trying to do it for, for, sort of great gratification or any or any of that stuff and as a result i think it gets to be what it was intended to be i absolutely agree and i think you have you have said it so so well i have so many questions to ask you but i know you have <laughs> to to get on with your day i always like to ask everyone what music are they listening to like right now yeah oh. what music are you listening to right now because if i i can't ask a musician what music they listen to because you're always listening to something but yeah. perhaps you know recently is there something that you've been listening to a lot of so i have a a playlist um a collection of songs that um i that is, and it's called orange juice for the years and it's my it's my orange juice for the years so over time i've um sort of collected all the tracks that you know um or albums that i i return to time and time and time again because again i don't think you need to keep on um coming up with oh you know there's I've got to say something new and I've got to say something that that person thinks is cool. And, you know, I think that's also a big part of why we end up sort of not being true to ourselves when it comes to music and art and all of that, because we feel like we should, you know, it's like being back at school. You want to say the right thing. Um, so what have I been listening? So I've been listening to my Orange Juice for the Year playlist and, you know, that has everything from um Nina to you know James Brown to Love to the Kinks um so a whole range you know but across uh soul rhythm and blues jazz rock uh folk um and then is there something i have really been listening to very recently oh well a dear friend of mine um very very dear friend probably my closest friend in LA um you know she passed away unexpectedly uh on Christmas Eve last oh Christmas gosh. Eve and she wrote so many wonderful songs she was a, a songwriter hall of fame songwriter and uh, Grammy Emmy 
uh, you know, um, a woman called Ali Willis. And I'm actually just staring as I chat with you. I'm staring at this poster she gave me of of eight of her her favorite tracks with the artwork, and um, and you know she's ins- uh, inscribed it. But um, up there is you know September Boogie Wonderland, uh, Neutron Dance, um, Stir It Up. Uh, what have I done to deserve this? And so actually, something I have been doing recently is I've been going through her catalog. And listening to songs I never realized she wrote, you know, that we never even talked about or she never mentioned because there were so many. Um, but also because it was September last month, um, I've been listening to September again, which is, you know, it was the song that she wanted at her m- memorial, which, of course, she had at her memorial. And I remember her saying that in that moment, it was just about joy you know you talk about intention and their intention her intention was just how do we make people feel pure joy with this song um and so yeah almost listening to that and then these other songs that she'd written and realizing that they all carry a certain frequency and resonance which is her which is joy Ali Willis wrote September by Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. I'm just, I was just checking because I was like, I don't, you know, that's extraordinary. You should check her out. Um, She is one in a million, one in a, in a zillion. And um, she really imprinted joy on me. And, um, you know, she is also someone that was never, just an art, just a songwriter musician she was so many things a physical artist built furniture um you know a, a web pioneer um she was a renaissance artist and uh and a dear dear friend that's so beautiful and a really beautiful way to end um bt thank you so much for taking the time for your for your insight for the way you think about things about life about music it's been a real pleasure and i'm i'm so grateful that i kind of accidentally discovered what you do because it has been it's been really really inspiring so thank you so much well thank you so much it was uh just a lovely um a lovely conversation and i uh, so appreciate you know um everything that you are doing and uh, and and all of your insight and all of your thoughts and uh, so thank you thank you thank you so much to BT Wolf in many ways BT's practice embodies what this podcast is about sharing knowledge to further the arts I hope you feel inspired to pursue answers to your questions to if you're in doubt remember the value of your creative practice of why the arts why your art especially in a time like this, matters. Please be sure to explore more of Beatty's work. It's art that needs to be experienced. Listen to her music, go to her website that has comprehensive information about all the work she's doing. And I've put a link to a wonderful film called Orange Juice for the Ears. She also has a podcast of the same name where you can learn more about Beatty and her work. Follow her on Instagram and also find out more about the work she and Mark Mothersbaugh are doing with Postcards for Democracy. All details are in the podcast blurb. 
Holding Up the Ladder is available on numerous platforms, including Acast, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher and Deezer. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. You can also donate to the podcast. Just click the link below. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Holding Up the Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week, we're talking about my other favourite thing, food. With author, restaurateur, social entrepreneur and culinary ambassador, Chef Pierre Thiam. Like the French, for instance, they focused on, 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 on peanuts. Peanuts became a cash crop in Senegal because the French wanted peanut oil at the time. Peanut oil was very prized. And peanut became a cash crop to the detriment of other crops like, like millet or sorghum or fonio. You know, those crops that the French had no need for. You know, and, 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 and we had this brainwashing that made us look down at those crops, you know, because we thought, you know, they're not, you know, they're not prized by the French. They're like, they're country people crops now. We're looking down at them and, and we prefer to, to have uh, you know, products like baguettes of, of croissants, you know. We don't grow wheat, you know, but we eat baguette every single day in Senegal, every single day, every household in Senegal, every single day has baguette in breakfast and has baguette at dinner time. I mean, that's like amazing. And we still don't grow wheat. Until next time.